Herbert Smith Freehills has released a new report, Forearmed, a Real Estate Disputes Guide to Likely Trends in 2021 and Beyond. To dig into some of these key battlegrounds for the months and years ahead, I'm joined by three of the firm's partners. Head of Real Estate Dispute Resolution, Matthew Bonney, Head of Planning, Matthew White, and from the Restructuring Insolvency Team, John Chetwood. Many thanks uh, for sharing the report. Now, you've described this as a roadmap to prepare for what lies ahead. So what led HSF to take this proactive approach? Well, Jess, I'm a a real estate sector lawyer, but um, many of the key areas of risk that we think are coming up overlap with other areas of the law, for example, employment and insolvency and so forth. So what we thought was missing and what we thought the market might like to see would be something which was a combined um, approach to give some nous from our contributing teams at Herbert Smith Freehills so that we've come up with something that cuts through the law and gives much more of a three-dimensional view and adopts more of a practical approach. So we hope that readers of it will find that it's a useful heads up, but it's not just about predicting the obstacles, as I say, it's actually mostly about navigating them. So uh-huh. um, we've really emphasised um, how um, things can be done actually right right away um, in preparation for, for things which may be bumps in the road. And you've identified 17 key themes in the report, and we are going to take a detailed look at quite a few of them today. Mm. Um, And you begin, understandably, uh, by looking at some of the impacts of the pandemic uh, and related issues. So between you, can you talk uh, me through those first two points in the report? Yeah, sure. I'll start off. I mean, obviously, it would um, would be quite a strange report if we didn't talk about (laughs) landlord and tenant enforcement and the moratoria. in fact, obviously, this is a this is a moving target. Uh, even uh, as as we speak, the the, the moratorium has gone back. Um, so our first question is, um, how long are landlords going to wait, and um, exactly what's going to happen because of uh, what everyone is now calling a, an increasing cliff edge? Is really a, a quite a difficult question for government as how to how to come back from this kind of a of a moratorium um, in in a sensible way. So our predictions on that are that, in fact, even though the the current um, new moratorium goes through to the end of June, that we just have to prepare for the fact that it's going to go on longer than that. Mm. Um, Our expectation uh, is tied mostly to to do with um, the way in which groups are lobbying. It's about politics. um, And we can see that there would be a a, a magnetic pull for government to be looking particularly for retail and um, to get through to the to the end of the third quarter because at that point um, retail will be in its in its most positive um, period of the year and that they will argue will be the the fairer time um, to uh, to return to a situation where some some debts can be recovered. Um, so we're predicting that we think that there is room for nuance in the way it's returned and uh, you know these are the kinds of points I'm debating with clients. Obviously the, the BPF is, is hugely involved in all of this. Um, there's a question as to whether for example you could have um, something where new arrears can be recovered but then the the, the what you might call the COVID um, moratorium period is set in aspect for the time being. I, I'm not sure about that actually I'd prefer to, to start with the oldest and have something perhaps where um, where the, the arrears say from a year ago are the ones which are freed up to be recovered because then you can step that up so that um, in fact when the when the when those claims are made um, the period for which recovery can um, can be allowed 
is then move forward quicker than um, the months go by um, creating new arrears. So that's one of the things which we thought might happen. I mean, from a practical perspective, we're keen to emphasise the fact that we've, we've found that there are effective ways of pursuing um, tenants who are in the um, can pay, won't pay category. Mm. Uh, debt claims uh, are, can be effective and there are other things which landlords definitely should be doing in relation to preserving rights against former tenants serving section 17 notices and those kind of things uh, and so we're making sure that um, in, in our briefing we've 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 given as full a list as possible of those things um you were asking about um about the other the other things which we've that we're, that we're running into and obviously the other side of the cliff edge is the prospect of CVAs um, and how we view that and actually uh, as I say John John is with us so I, I'll pass to him just to say a few things about his views on that. Thanks Matthew and Jess good to speak again. I, I think the next few months are going to be an incredibly interesting time in the, 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 the balance that's been playing out over the last 10 years you know, as to what is the what is the best, most effective way for landlords to maximise their own position, protect their interests as best they can when faced with restructuring proposals. And broadly, you've got two different routes. You've got your pursue legal remedies. So I'm thinking things like challenging CVAs, um, things like you know, disputes with administrators over conduct, that that type of thing. Or you have you know, using commercial leverage where you can, um, by which I mean things like coming together to form ad hoc groups of landlords where they're significant stakeholders in distressed situations with a view to bringing that commercial leverage to bear so they're around the table rather than just waiting until the proposal is received. Why do I say it's interesting? Um, I think we are going to have some legal developments over the next few months. Um, I think Jess, the last time you and I spoke on a podcast was about two years ago, and I mentioned that we were terribly interested to see what would happen in in the the, the, the Regis CBA mm-hmm. challenge. We're expecting, you know, we think there'll be a judgment coming out, you know, hopefully in the not too distant future on yep. that. And there's also the expected new look um, CBA challenge. There's also today to throw something else into the mix. There's the new announced um, restructuring plan, which is using the new part 26a restructuring plan which was introduced by the government last summer as part of the sort of covid emergency measures that um, there's been an announced um, rp in relation to a certain landlord tenant point so come what may it seems that we will have some potentially significant new judicial um, decisions in the area so as to the balance between using legal mechanisms or bringing the commercial leverage to bear certainly there'll be some new law i suspect Mm -hmm. um, for good or for bad for landlords and whilst as a prudent and sensible lawyer i'm not very keen to make predictions because um, they often come back to, to 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 bite you i suspect actually even if there are wins for landlords during the process the position will remain frankly as it always has in a restructuring context that even where landlords win on certain points that victory frankly shows the next person how to restructure whilst avoiding those pitfalls. So if I were to be so bold as to make a prediction, I would say that even if there are victories for landlords, and I say victories in the context that actually that's typically going to result in a worse outcome for 
for landlords if the entity collapses into administration it's a poor outcome for employees but if there are to be sort of legal victories for, for landlords they may well um, not um, settle the balance and I suspect landlords will still need to be comfortable using their commercial leverage at an earlier stage. Now obviously there's been an awful lot of discussion about the position of landlords and tenants um, during the pandemic. We, we've had reams and reams of coverage and I'm sure you've all spoken at length over the last 12 months about their position but one thing I think is interesting in your report is that that, that third issue there you, you raise um, an issue that perhaps hasn't had as much commentary which is the the ever knotty problem of lease guarantors. So mm. what, uh, what are the issues that you see arising uh, there? So uh, we see lots of leases where the tenant's actually an SPV company and the real value of the covenant to the to the landlord real estate investor is in the guarantor. And we think that there will continue to be these kind of manoeuvrings that we've seen um, in recent year or two by guarantor companies so that their value is taken out and the worth of the covenant declines or sometimes disappears. So um, it's interesting that, you know, in, in comparison, the world of finance agreements, there can be stipulations about companies, uh, guarantors, maintaining a level of assets and value as the agreement continues. And in contrast, sometimes we're looking at really quite long leases um, going on for decades. And uh, But the same thing doesn't seem to apply. That tends not to be the case for leasehold tenants. And the value of the guarantee is often checked um, at the point when the lease is entered into, but with no obligation then to maintain it. And we think There'll be a trend for that to change, particularly uh, after the well-publicised offshore insolvency of the Regis um, guarantor entity. Um, and the other thing that goes with that in terms of guarantor manoeuvrings is actually this in previous cycles. We've seen a, a prevalence of arguments by guarantors that um, actually all that's happened is that their liability has, has simply been discharged as a matter of contract. And the classic example of that um, is if a lease is varied without the guarantor's consent. And uh, under the doctrine of home and Brunskill, that can uh, usually be enough for a guarantee to be discharged. And in particular, um, we, we're thinking of um, our clients who may be investors buying a portfolio where the value is actually in the guarantee of a tenant. And it's really worth focusing then on things like side agreements, you know, even informal ones that may have created a variation that stops the guarantee continuing to be effective or it gives the guarantor some kind of an argument um, and the argument itself can be something that, which is just expensive to counter and not not what a, a, an investor would want. Now, uh, a major aspect of the pandemic that is is undoubtedly going to have a very significant lasting effect is the, the fact that so many of us have, been, have spent the last 12 months um, working from home. Uh, and that's inevitably going to lead to, to changed ways of working going forwards and undoubtedly different office requirements uh, in terms of location, size, fit out. So what are some of the points that you've picked out in the report relating to that return to the office and, and how you think it is going to play out? Yeah, so um, this has got to be a huge subject because everybody is expecting there to be a, a huge return um, to work. And um, it's one of those areas which, as I say, is, is not a real estate area on its own. So here we've been considering the points with our health and safety team and with our employment team. Um, but there are critical points, particularly in relation to the employment uh, law uh, arena. There can be some prospect that there could be the threat of some kind of a two-tier workplace where um, some employees um, may 
feel that they're able to return and others may sense that they are effectively prejudiced because they cannot be. Um, there's um, been some recent data that's been published where it suggested that employees who attended at the office um, were being um, promoted more rapidly than those that weren't. So those kinds of points immediately throw up questions as to the fairness of, of um, how people are being treated. Um, from a landlord's perspective, landlords can often be in control of the common parts of buildings. And if that's the case, then there can be questions as to whether policies would ever be introduced, um, which we think would be very risky in relation to things, for example, this phrase which we've used in the in the guide, which is to talk about situations where it's no vaccine, no entry. We see those kind of issues um, being also tied to health and safety, where at the same time, people who are in control of property then have an, a duty to those people who are within it um, to look after it to the extent that obviously it isn't sublet. So thinking about things like common parts, all of those things combined suggest that there will be employment law cases that come up and there will also be landlord and tenant disputes in relation to the way in which buildings are managed and controlled. Yeah, I think you mentioned uh, sort of major issues, uh, including dilapidations and termination and, and forfeiture. Yeah, those are, are the points which um, immediately come up where where one's dealing with with value. Um, one of the things which uh, is likely to be said about 2020 uh, and particularly for retail is that there were some major fluctuations in in the value of, of, of um, particularly retail investments. Uh, one of the things which goes with that is that, for example, with the realm of dilapidations, uh, the, um, there's a, a well-known statutory cap, which means that a landlord can't recover more um, from a tenant for lack of repair um, than the difference between the value of the premises in repair and out of repair. So in circumstances where there's been a dip, um, in the value of, 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 of that property value, it may be the case that the, the, the statutory cap kicks in uh, uh, with a more brutal effect, such that um, a landlord isn't able then to make much of a claim. And similarly, if they're unable to relet at that point, then the usual argument that a landlord is suffering from um, a, a loss of, um, of opportunity to simply to quickly to get a tenant in because um, they are looking instead at quite a long reletting period. That may mean that the chances of claiming damages based upon um, the period of time for repairs to be done uh, will also um, be reduced. So those kinds of points based upon value, including on the 54 Act and potentially opportunist behaviour by tenants in respect of seeking renewals uh, and perhaps going for renewals on unusual terms, which we saw um, last time round in 2008-2009, we saw um, banks uh, and other uh, tenants seeking very unusual leases, leases for five years, but with a rolling six-month break, which are typically a landlord would never be granting. Um, and then there would be extremely confusing arguments about exactly what the, the, the market rent would be for that in circumstances where actually the market doesn't usually grant those kind of leases. So we see those things. And uh, in our briefing, we've 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 come up with some points about exactly how how best to counter those. Mm -hmm. And bringing the other Matthew in at this point, um, obviously, the last 12 months have, have brought uh, a raft of uh, planning changes. Uh, and as we uh, adjust to um, what the what the status quo will be in, in in the months and years ahead, and, and those changing 
uh, work life requirements that, that we've talked about, it's going to have a major impact on development uh, and planning. Um, so what, what do you see as some of the major issues in your area, Matthew? Yes, thanks, Jess. I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be a fascinating <laughs> year ahead. Um, and I think we're all looking forward to a much better year than the one we've just had in, in terms of our own environment. Uh, and that that's kind of the key here is, is how we are going to work will inevitably change. But I think there has been a lot of speculation about the death of cities as we know them. Uh, and, and my view is that has been um, overplayed. Um, and probably less will change um, than people expect. Um, so we will still be working in offices um, predominantly, um, but the way we work will be more agile, more flexible. And I think from my perspective, what's interesting is how that translates into the new schemes that will be brought forward by um, developers um, in town centres. And I think um, far from this indicating there will be a slump in office uh, development, I think you're going to see um, more schemes coming forward. And that's because there will be a shift to prime offices. So if we are going to entice employees back into the office, um, they need a good reason to be there. It needs to be better than their home office environment that they've been used to over the last year. So we're going to see, need to see more flexible space. We're going to need to see more um, congregational space in offices where people can interact uh, personally and physically, um, rather than being stuck in um, cellular offices, uh, which some of us still have, um, or, or sort of open plan working environments that, that don't really allow that degree of collaboration. And we're also going to see a lot more um, uh, sort of ancillary spaces. So, you know, fun cafe areas and, and um, congregational space. And I think that means that the, there will be a new type of office that comes forward as, as being attractive to um, occupiers and we'll see people trading up. Um, so very good news for new office space, not so good for secondary space coming forward. Um, so I think that's probably the main thing we're going to see, but um, you know, a lot more issues out there as well. And uh, how do you foresee that, that that's going to translate into some of the some of the disputes that might arise in the, in the months and years ahead? Yeah, so what we have seen is that um, it has been busy over the last year and most clients have been progressing with their planning um, uh, processes uh, and securing planning consents for schemes that were designed mostly pre hmm. the pandemic. So what we now have is a series of permissions that are, are really uh, already out of date, almost out of mm. date from the date they were granted. So what we're expecting is that looking ahead, we're going to see developers wanting to change those permissions, to vary them, to become more flexible, to become more agile, to fit the new business models that we're all expecting. Um, and that uh, is not always an easy process. Um, <laughs> planning has become somewhat complex and there are now a lot of restrictions on what you can do to achieve that flexibility. Um, and there have been a few cases recently, um, Finney and the Welsh ministers was one, uh, where uh, they limited the uh, scope to vary planning permissions um, uh, in certain ways. So I think we're going to see a lot more uh, uh, debate with planning authorities about what they can and can't do, what developers can and can't do. Um, and to some extent, I think planning authorities are still applying policies that were designed pre-pandemic. 
And so inevitably, this will lead to disputes in the planning sphere about what should be allowed and, and whether um, the policies that are being applied to decide what can change and what can be granted permission um, should should in fact be updated. And that will lead to appeals um, and, and inquiries and potentially um, if, it, if, if things can't be settled, then it will go to judicial review. So I, I think a lot of um, I, perhaps disputes isn't quite the right word, mm. um, but certainly, um, you know, some contentious uh, discussions will need to be had if we are going to achieve the sort of flexibility that I think the sort of post-COVID world really requires. So turning to the rest of the report, because uh, we've, we've only got so much of your time available, maybe I should ask each of you to pick out maybe one or two of the points that you find particularly interesting. So uh, Matthew Bonney, uh, we'll return to you now. Um, I've actually got a couple which um, are worth throwing together. And um, this is where we've really stuck our neck out. We're talking about law, which no doesn't even exist at the moment, but we're seeing the direction of travel. And we think this is really important for landlords. So one of the areas we focused on is whether forfeiture will be the only way a landlord can terminate a lease for breach in the future, because this is a developing area of case law. And um, so far, the case law seems to be clear that tenants can sometimes terminate a lease if the landlord has committed a serious enough breach. And we think that the same may be found to apply for landlords, uh, that they can terminate um, if a tenant has committed a serious breach. I think that the market conditions are right for this to be tested through the courts now. And the reason is this, that a landlord um, can forfeit a lease. But as the law stands, um, if the landlord gets the property back, um, they can't then sue for loss of bargain damages. So a landlord may have a building which um, it can only relet at a discount to the old rent. If this was any other kind of contract, then the landlord uh, could sue for the difference as a loss of bargain claim. But we think that there are many more situations which are likely to come up in the next few months where a landlord is faced with terminating a lease and where it will want to recover loss of bargain damages. So we think that a case is likely to come up on that point to see if there is an additional way in which termination can happen aside from forfeiture. Um, but not only that, but it links with another area which we've also gone into in detail in the report, um, which is that we think that the law of relief from forfeiture may extend further in the next couple of years, particularly after the Manchester Ship Canal case, uh, and so that it can apply specifically to agreements for lease. Um, if that happens, then landlords will be looking for ways to terminate those kind of agreements, non-lease agreements, licences and so forth, but without the risk of a claim by the tenant for relief from forfeiture. So again, that pushes us again towards those kind of situations where um, uh, there, there should, we think, be a ruling on the points coming up, possibly not in the next year, but we're thinking now in terms of the next two to three years. And uh, Matthew White, uh, anything else um, that, that, that you particularly want to pick out from the report? Um, I'm going to pick out something that isn't directly in the report, but goes to the theme that I was talking about earlier. So we have seen new permitted development rights mm -hmm. introduced uh, by by central government, allowing much more flexible uh, use classes. And one of those is, is Class E, which is a, a town centre use, which covers, um, you know, not just office, but also retail, leisure and, and some other uses. And this has been very welcomed by uh, property owners, landowners and developers, um, but less so by local authorities. 
Um, and so we are seeing uh, an, an uptick in um, clients approach us to say, we want to change how our premises are being used from, say, a, a, a high street uh, department store on Oxford Street um, into, say, a leisure use, uh, which is permitted under those rights. Um, but we're having resistance from the local authority because they want to try and control this much more um, closely. Um, and can you help us with uh, what will otherwise become a dispute? So I think that is an area that we're keeping a close eye on and we think will inevitably lead to further friction and disputes uh, looking forward. Um, and so we, we will be watching it closely. And John, is there, is there anything you'd like to add either on any of those points or, or, or elsewhere from the uh, the report? Yes, th thanks, Jess. I'd just like to raise sort of one point really, um, which I think is actually quite closely related to Matthews, which is the, the pandemic has obviously hit people and affected businesses, sectors differently. Um, and what we are seeing in the restructuring world is a real difference between those who have had it, had it, had it very tough, um, those businesses have had it very tough, and those who actually have, have, have performed well. And I think one of the interesting features for landlords be for some of those sectors of the market where existing business models are less viable than they were going into the pandemic, right, because you've had a decade's worth of change accelerated over the course of a year, actually getting into conversations around change of use being a being a, 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 a legitimate approach where actually there's you know, the previous use just is never going to get to the, the levels that were anticipated. I think those types of conversations you know, will start to become very interesting. They, they've been they've been floated, but it's never made economic sense to, to do that. Whereas I, I'm just interested to see actually, are there going to be situations where that is now being considered because the pace of change has been so rapid that for certain sectors, you do need to think about that. And then that's where you know, people like Matthew bring their experience to bear and their, their weight, because actually for those areas, it's um, it, it, it's a tricky, it's much easier said than done to, to repurpose the site. Thank you very much, all of you. Now, we, we obviously haven't had time to go into great depth on, on all 17 points in the forearmed report but i think we've we've covered a lot of ground um and uh listeners uh, i'm sure can find out more on the hsf website is that right that's right um it will be on um the hsf website and um uh, that, that'll be available on friday of this week the 12th of march okay so many thanks to each of you uh, for joining me to set out this roadmap of real estate disputes thank, thank you. you thanks jess